that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, John Molenkoff, distinguished professor at the City University of New York, joins me to reflect on the Michael Bloomberg's three terms as mayor of New York City and what the election of de Blasio means for the city. We'll be talking about inequality, affordable housing, immigration, and urban development, and much more. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions... Stay with us. And welcome to the program. Thanks for being with me on the show. And uh, again, uh, on the show, we're going to go back to New York City for a second week. Um, and as you might remember, last week, uh, we were t- talking with um, Valerie Jean, and she was with uh, Families United for Racial and Economic Equality, based out of Brooklyn. And again today, we're going to be l- reflecting on the Michael Bloomberg era and the recent election of Bill de Blasio, the first Democratic mayor elected since 1993 in New York City. And... Uh, Quite, a, quite an interesting, uh, a lot of interesting discussion that we had with um, Valerie Jean last week and continuing with some of the, the themes um, from last week into this week. So looking at questions of affordable housing, questions of inequality, uh, questions of the, the politics of urban development and things like gentrification, um, but also things like policing and uh, what that means and how that affects uh, people differently. So a number of these, these, uh, these questions uh, will be continuing this, the discussion this week uh, with John uh, Molenkoff. And uh, Dr. Molenkoff is a distinguished professor of political science and sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and he is director of the Center for Urban Research. He is a renowned urban scholar on New York City's politics and has authored or edited 15 books on urban politics, urban policy, immigration, and New York City. Um, And... Moreover, uh, prior to joining the Graduate Center in 1981, he directed the Economic Development Division of uh, the New York City Department of City Planning. And I spoke with Professor Molenkoff by phone at his home in New York City on January 23rd.
Well, I want to first begin by asking you to provide a historical overview of the politics of New York City and uh, taking us back to the city's machine politics and bringing us into the contemporary. Well, there's always been a kind of dialectic between uh, regular machine politics in New York City and reforming elites who would like to go beyond the parochialism and the self-dealing of machine politics. As you probably know, the contemporary New York was founded in 1898 when all five boroughs came together. Before that, New York City was just Manhattan and the Bronx. And for a long time, uh, the city was somewhat decentralized, and each county, each borough, has its own political operation, its county party organization. So Tammany Hall was the county party organization for Manhattan, but there were similar organizations in, in the other boroughs. And against that uh, tendency to decentralize and to have contracts and jobs and that sort of thing uh, influenced heavily by local interests, reformers generally have tried to centralize New York City government and increase the power of the mayor. And that's gradually happened uh, from through charter reforms in, 19, in the early 1930s and then again in the mid-1970s. And by now, the borough presidencies and borough influence is uh, fairly attenuated in city government, and the mayoralty is, is the big prize. Um, in this dialectic between reform and machine politics, uh, you could say that the LaGuardia era was, was one of reform, but uh, at the time of World War II, after that LaGuardia era ended, there was a long string of more machine-oriented mayors. Um, that was, again, punctuated by Mayor Lindsay, elected as a Republican and, and liberal uh, in in the mid-late 1960s. Um, after, after Lindsay, you had a, a return to a borough-oriented, uh, more machine government in the mayoralty of, of, of Abe Beam. Um, but then Mayor Koch came in in 1977, uh, and initially as a kind of more liberal reformer, but over time, I think, a more conservative Reformer and Koch put together a coalition of um, outer borough whites, uh, middle class and upper middle class professional liberals in New York City, and some minority support. And uh, but but basically driven, I think, by racial polarization to a considerable extent. And that same pattern was evident in the. Um, elections between um, David Dinkins and Rudolph Giuliani, as well as the, the challenges to, to Koch earlier, and then uh, in, in both the Giuliani and Bloomberg uh, elections by and large. Although um, in this last decade, there were different dynamics depending on which Democrat was uh, nominated to, to compete against uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg. And now, finally, we've come to a point where a liberally oriented reform movement has managed to coalesce a lot of disparate constituencies behind Bill de Blasio. And in a sense, he's he's uh, taking the city back to the same kind of 
tradition and aspirations and coalitions that you could see in both the LaGuardia and the Lindsay mayoralties. Can you talk more about the the racial and class tensions that have characterized um, politics in New York City over the the last decades, maybe um, taking us back to the the post-war years? Well, racial tensions really broke out in their strongest form uh, in the late 60s and into the fiscal crisis period of the 1970s. And there was a very rapid racial succession taking place in New York City in the, in the, in the decade of the 70s. More than a million uh, white people left the city. Um, the net population drop was considerable, and uh, it would have fallen even further if it weren't for the growth of the black and Latino populations. And the fiscal crisis and the blackout of 1977 and uh, the riots and the uh, um, push for minority empowerment and so forth really raised the salience of racial issues in, in that decade. Previously, there were, of course, racial and ethnic differences and tensions, but the competition was more between the white Catholics and Jewish uh, voters who were more liberal and tended to be aligned with minority voters than it was a sort of white-black or white versus black and Latino uh, sort of thing. And that the great thing for the city really is that the racial tensions have gradually abated since that since that time. And really the de Blasio victory is quite remarkable because he got majority support from white communities and communities of color in the city. Whereas if you go back to the, even the Bloomberg races, but especially the Giuliani-Dinkins races, it was very sharply uh, racially divided. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you now to reflect on the Bloomberg era in New York City. Well, I've I've said in print that I think that Mayor Bloomberg is one of the best mayors that New York City has ever had. He came in at a period when the city was on very, very shaky grounds uh, right after the September 11th attacks and in 2001, and uh, there had been a growth of aspiration, I think, towards the end of the Giuliani administration to have a government that was more liberal, more progressive, more inclusive, and I think the September 11 attacks really changed that conversation so that the city wanted somebody who could encourage reinvestment in the city promote the recovery, uh, instill confidence or reinstill confidence, and be seen as a very good manager. And I think Mayor Bloomberg did all those things. Um, I think three terms were um, essentially something that began to grate on the city's population towards the end. Uh, and the fact that the mayor as as able as he is or was uh, in so many respects, basically ran in the circles of the of the most uh, influential, rich, uh, and powerful people in the city, conveyed an image that um, the rest of the city wasn't being 
taken as as seriously as it wanted to be. And also, the development trends in the city have raised the anxiety level, even if of middle class families about whether they can afford to stay in the city. Um, this was not what they were worrying about in 2001. On the on the program last week, I spoke to um, Families United for for Racial and Economic Equality, and and uh, Valerie Jean characterized you know their past work as constantly up against um, Bloomberg's development policies. And I'm wondering, you characterize um, Bloomberg as as a generally good manager, um, but I'm wondering how much of how much of that um, maybe is might be challenged or contested if we if we look at the effect of of development and things like gentrification. Well, I you know he was the most successfully pro development mayor that we've had in my experience of living in New York City, and I moved here in 1980. Um, it's it's a complex heritage in the sense that he downzoned a number of places as well as upzoned a number of places. And he lost a few big, big things that he wanted, like a football stadium on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, but he upzoned a number of areas, quite a few areas, and the uh, the zoning increase on the midwest side, lower west side of Manhattan is going to have an effect on the city for decades to come. The rezoning on the Brooklyn waterfront in Williamsburg and Greenpoint is going to have an effect. It already has had an effect on, uh, on the city for decades to come. Uh, and and yes, um, he said in, he was not an opponent of, of development. He was a, a major proponent of development. And um, in a sense, I think he would say, well, you know, New York City will wither on the vine if we can't promote investment, and especially. I mean, there were people writing stories after September 11th that uh, tall office buildings would never be built again. Uh, And we had a very complicated and thorny process for trying to rebuild on ground zero. Uh, So I I think at least in the first term and into the second term, there was fairly widespread um, appreciation for the fact that the mayor could – was – was helping to catalyze more investment for the city. Uh, but as, as as his terms wore on, I think people became more and more anxious about the rise of the rent-income ratio, the rise of, of prices, the worry about affordability of the, of the city in general. And uh, all that was a major f- factor in de Blasio's victory in this last election. What what is to be taken away as well from the the policing um, during this period? Stop and frisk, um, racial profiling, uh, a lot of these issues, which um, for for black community and for um, communities of color was um, was a big issue. Well, it's it's a very complicated dynamic because the fall of the crime rate benefited poor uh, black and Latino neighborhoods the most. And in in the bad old days of the late 80s and into the very early 90s, people in those neighborhoods were really afraid 
to go out after dark or to go to the corner store or that their children might be shot by random gunfire from drug dealers. And that situation has turned around, you know, to a fantastic degree in the city. And this, I think, is embraced by everyone as a really major accomplishment that quite a few people thought could not really be achieved through local action. People thought that crime was reflected broader structural changes and wasn't so amenable to being influenced by police practices. Um, some of those police practices that achieved this outcome are kind of repressive, and um, the full court you know, treatment of, by the police of young men of color has been an issue uh, for quite a long time in the city, um, even going back to the to the 1990s uh, in the Giuliani administration, and uh, more recently, I think the stop and frisk, the rate of stop and frisk, clearly escalated beyond any material effect on the crime rate and. I don't know exactly how, how and why that happened or whether some people say it reflected um, the institution of quotas on beat, beat cops that they had to stop a certain number of people. Um, and so they just, you know, took that to extremes. Um, the, even in the last year of the Bloomberg administration, the number of stops, questions and frisks, um, receded quite a bit without opening the door for any increases in the crime rate. So it's it's kind of hard to tell exactly, you know, whether this is a key ingredient to keeping crime under control or what level uh, and what ways is, is important to that. And that's, that's something that really needs to be looked at closely and analytically, I, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Bloomberg did that people don't talk about very much is to shift a very substantial amount of police resources away from maintaining order and reducing crime to uh, counterterrorism activities. And again, it's hard to say exactly how that pretty massive commitment of resources uh, affected you know, the fact that we haven't had a subsequent, any subsequent terrorist attacks in, in New York City. But Bloomberg did achieve a decreasing rates of reported violent crimes, even as the amount of resources that went into policing uh, was reduced, both in terms of the overall headcount in the department and the shift of the resources to counterterrorism activities. Can you give me a sense of the the changing racial, ethnic, and immigrant profile of New York City over the last uh, decade or or two? Well, let me put it this way. Native-born white people with native-born parents are now less than one in five residents of New York City. And interestingly, also, the native African-American and native-born, native-origin Puerto Rican populations have been declining. Uh, and so as the city becomes more minority, it's been immigration that's driving the growth of 
minority populations, whether that's black, Latino, Asian, or even white. Um, we received quite a few um, immigrants from the former Soviet Union, and we currently have some immigration from places like Albania. Um, but the biggest immigration flows currently are uh, from Latin America, particularly Mexico, and, and from China. So this is sort of, I would say, blurring the edges of the sharp black-white divide that so characterized the city, say, in the mid-70s. Mid uh, we still have a very high degree of racial segregation in the city, um, but we have uh, different mixes of neighborhood populations than we had in the past. Um, so uh, it's hard to say who the majority group is in the city at this point. There's some, you know, native-born whites are still probably plurality, um, but there, there's a kaleidoscope of other groups as well in, in the city. How does this get reflected in electoral politics in New York City? That's a great question. Um, it's it's challenging in that I to me the rhetoric of people of color or sort of block racial identification like like black or Latino um, don't work as well as they might have in the past because each of these larger groups is or larger categories is, is fragmented into many different national origin pieces. And that, that can create a bit of competition. For example, in many Spanish-speaking neighborhoods of the city, the longtime leadership is Puerto Rican, but the growing population is Dominican. So there's some Dominican versus Puerto Rican uh, political competition. And then... In, we've just elected our first uh, Mexican-American city council person from Red Hook and Sunset Park in, in Brooklyn. That's a predominantly Spanish-speaking area, but the immigrants are not as likely to be citizens as the native-born white population is. And moreover, uh, the, the Spanish-speaking population is, is very diverse. It's Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexican, many other things. So this council person could not run on, you know, I'm the Mexican candidate, even though everybody is happy we have our first Mexican uh, ancestry, Mexican origin city council person. Mexican voters didn't put him into office. What did put him into office was focusing on the needs of the community for housing, criticizing the response uh, la lacking response to uh, Superstorm Sandy um, and other community-based issues that kind of cut across a number of different ethnic and racial groups. I want to ask you now to uh, to reflect on the significance of de Blasio's election and uh, also if you can maybe just give us a sense of, of where he comes from and um, and his politics and, and what this might mean for um, public housing in the city, for affordable housing more, more broadly, and, and things like income inequality and, um, and, and other services in the city, jobs as well. 
Well, as a longtime neighbor, friend, and supporter of Bill de Blasio's, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. I, I think this is definitely a watershed moment for the city, just like the election of Lindsay was, just like the election of David Dinkins was, just like the early LaGuardia period in which the progressive forces in the city have coalesced to say, let's take on some big challenges and see what we can do about them. Um, Bill started out in New York City politics set uh, in the 1989 Dinkins campaign. He spent time uh, running for the local school board here in Park Slope. Um, those school boards were su subsequently abolished, but he he came out of a group of parents who were working very hard to make the local public elementary school the best that it could be, and was a significant leader of that effort. So he really, he comes out of grassroots neighborhood uh, and reformist politics activism. And, um, you know, he was our city council person and then public advocate and, and now mayor. So he has, um, you know, tw 24 years of highly skilled experience in the the public stages and the back alleys of New York City politics, and uh, there's there's nobody who could fool him about you know what their motives were or um, trying to play some sort of trick on him. Um, he's he's a past master at at dealing with all these uh, different forces that are that are in play, and I think quite able to reconcile them and inspire us to to move forward uh, certainly I think uh, you know a day or two after he was inaugurated there was a big snowstorm and he was out in front of his relatively modest park slope house shoveling the sidewalk and you couldn't have a more striking contrast to the idea of uh, Mayor Bloomberg sometimes being absent from New York City in the middle of a blizzard, partly because he couldn't fly his jet from Bermuda back into the city during the middle of the storm or something. Uh, so, you know, we have a man of the people um, leading leading our city. And although, obviously, cities alone can't necessarily change larger structural forces pushing towards inequality, I think you can bet that he's going to do everything that is feasible at the local level to really, you know, attack the issues that are that are upsetting people. Can I ask you specifically about um, the New York Public Housing Authority and and even in in places that are not New York City, um, it tends to be a big issue because it is such a large um, amount of of housing in the city. What do you think um, De Blasio, the election of De Blasio, means for for public housing? Um, for affordable housing um, and as a way to, to counter inequality and address inequality and perhaps create a situation in which more working working class folks can afford to remain in New York City and certain parts of the city? Well, there's somewhat uh, distinct challenges. Uh, New York City is far and away the biggest public housing authority in the nation, 280,000 units. Um, by and large, I think it's been a reasonably well-run system. You don't see a lot of abandoned or scrapped or warehoused units like you see in some other big 
urban public housing projects. We haven't torn down any units through OPE 6, as many other places like Chicago and Atlanta have done. Uh, but on the other hand, the system is in crisis in terms of um, declining federal support for operating subsidies, declining federal support for capital subsidies. Um, the fact that because the rents are very modest, um, the rent rolls don't generate enough money to um, operate the system, much less undertake a massive, you know, the massive capital improvement uh, activities that are needed. So um, we have to find a way to generate new capital resources for the housing authority and to bring the operating revenues and costs more into line. That's just a kind of basic budgetary fact of life. Um, Mayor Bloomberg had some ideas about building market rate housing on the open territory of some of the biggest housing projects that are located in the most desirable parts of the city, especially in Manhattan, and that that drew a lot of uh, skepticism and, and, and criticism, probably justifiably so. Um, but if that if that's not going to be the uh, solution, then we have to find other solutions. And, and one step that I think Bill will, will definitely take is to uh, shift the payments that the housing authority makes to the police department for what used to be the housing authority police um, off the books of, of the housing authority. And that will provide some operating uh, cost relief, but that's not going to solve the whole problem. It's a, it's a major challenge. In terms of affordable housing more generally, both um, from Mayor Koch through Mayor Dinkins and even Mayor Giuliani and then Mayor Bloomberg, there have been very large-scale efforts to build new affordable housing, to preserve affordable housing that was threatening to leave the affordable housing stock, and to keep ahead of the, you know, the rising prices in the market. And those were massive programs unparalleled anywhere else in the country. Um, they achieved a lot of good effects, but they didn't really, you know, roll the tide back on the on the rising rent burdens that the city is experiencing. Mayor de Blasio will probably move towards mandatory inclusionary zoning and also has an an ambitious plan to preserve or build two hundred thousand more units. But um you know, it's going to be hard. For, it's going to be a challenge for him to succeed on that. And um, but it'll be a major, you know, test for the administration to see how good the progress is on that front. And the mayor has appointed somebody to be deputy mayor for housing and economic development, who has a lot of experience in this in this world. Uh, and I'm sure the progressive forces in this city are all going to be rooting for his success. Do you think his election has brought back some optimism about what what is possible at the urban scale, or or do you think um, people are thinking that it's just more of the same? I mean, definitely, if you, I mean, New York really is a city that, if you looked at 
the trajectory from 1970 to 1980, you might say this city is headed downward. It's going to be a giant version of Cleveland or Detroit or uh, Milwaukee, and it, it that didn't happen. It turned out, it turned around, and began to grow again. And immigration was a big part of that. Of both uh, the business elites and the, and the labor uh, movement in the city said, no, we're not going to let the city collapse. We're going to put our shoulder to the wheel. There were a lot of civic mobilization and engagement went into revitalizing um, the city. And, you know, de Blasio's election gives us a new burst of energy to, to keep at that project. What do you make of the living wage movements that are, you know, going on across North American cities, but we see them um, in Chicago, we see them, um, I see a lot of organizing happening with with a lot of low-wage service workers, often Latino. Um, do you think this has transformative potential or the possibility of of um, really longer longer-term change? Well, this is a step in the right direction. The Bloomberg administration commissioned a study by um, a you know a, a very high-profile consulting company to demonstrate. I believe it was McKinsey. I'm not positive about that. To de- to demonstrate that um, a living wage ordinance was going to be counterproductive and would, uh, although it would benefit people who got the living. Wages, it would discourage job growth, and uh, people who didn't get jobs would suffer even more than those who did get the jobs would would benefit. This, uh, I think, is is challenged by academic studies of various jurisdictions that have introduced living wage ordinances that that have not found so pronounced an effect. Um, but the need to raise the wages of working people in New York City through whatever means, whether it's regulatory or whether it's increasing the level of unionization, um, is clear. The the wage structure has polarized, and the uh, the median wage has drifted downwards, and the and low uh, low paid work has become a larger and larger share of the labor force in the city, and these are not good trends for the prosperity of the city or the upward mobility of the people in the city, and and so we have to find um, whatever tools we can to, to counteract that. Lastly, I want to ask you what you think maybe two of the, the major priorities um, in New York City should be um, under de Blasio's watch. Well, I think the mayor has already made it clear what his priorities are. Number one, pre-K on a universal scale and more after-school activities. And the social science research on that is pretty ironclad, that the differences in racial racial gaps in achievement open up very early, and pre-K is an important way to, to keep those gaps from, from widening. Uh, he's made affordable housing uh, a major goal and uh, with a very ambitious target to reach. And he's also talked in many ways about empowering neighborhoods and being more responsive to uh, community interests and so on. And I think all of those things are are achievable. Um, and in general, his rhetoric has been 
we want a city that's less unequal. We want a city with greater upward mobility. Um, since the forces driving inequality and limiting upward mobility are not just local in scale, but are, are regional and national and international, um, it, you know, there are going to be limits on how far we can we can move. But um, if we don't try to move on on these problems, things are just going to get worse. Is there anything else that uh, I didn't ask you that you want to uh, leave listeners with or any final comments? Well, I'm optimistic about a number of things in the city. And first and foremost, I think despite the continuing high level of inequality across racial and ethnic groups, the fact that we are not um, engaged in pitched ethnic and racial battles at the moment is a real plus for the city. Uh, The fact that crime rates are relatively low and that people feel happy and free to move around the city is a lot, is a great plus. Uh, I think we're still one of the best platforms for um, economic activities anywhere in the globe. And in fact, that the kinds of efforts undertaken by the de Blasio administration will enhance that rather than undermine it. And to the extent that's true, it gives us, you know, some leverage to work on our inequality problem. So I I really think at this point, New York um, is one of the most important laboratories uh, anywhere for, you know, making some progress on these vexing issues.
This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. This is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and on the program we had uh, distinguished professor John Molenkoff, and he's uh, based out of the City University of New York's Graduate uh, Center, and he directs uh, the Center for Urban Research um, at the City University of New York. And a real pleasure to have him on the program um, talking about what the election of uh, de Blasio means for New York, but also reflecting back on um, the the three terms of uh, Michael Bloomberg, Republican uh, mayor uh, and de Blasio uh, being the first Democratic mayor elected to the city since 1993. So uh, quite a watershed moment for the city. And as he mentioned, a real turning point in a lot of um, progressive forces rallying around um, around de Blasio and the work that uh, he set out for himself. So quite a fascinating discussion, um, but also thinking about uh, the, the history of politics in New York City, and I uh, was um, especially fascinated, and it was a real uh, treat to hear um, Professor Molenkoff kind of lay out that history and give us a sense of the tensions um, that have um, been been part of politics and the political and electoral landscape in the city for uh, for decades. So uh, again, um, if you also missed um, if you missed any part of that, you can check that out at thecityfm.org. If you're just tuning in, um, but also if you uh, missed last week's uh, show, we had a discussion with Valerie Jean, um, executive director of Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. It's a um, advocacy and uh, nonprofit organization, community organization based out of uh, Brooklyn. New York, and uh, we were discussing uh, some similar themes around housing inequality, um, reflecting back on the Bloomberg administration and many of the battles um, that they were up against um, fighting for um, for development that, that recognizes um, uh, low-income people and, and their part of the city and their right to the city, um, but also the impact that development and gentrification um, has across uh, class and also racial lines. So um, that was very much um, uh, part of that discussion. And again, if you missed that, check it out at thecityfm.org. So I also want to mention um, an upcoming event that is uh, is hitting Vancouver um, on, um, now I've uh, misplaced the date here, on February 1st. Um, this is the SCARP uh, Symposium. This is uh, the, the School of Community and Regional Planning uh, based here at the University of British Columbia, and it's their annual event. And I'm just going to read a little information. Uh, this, this certainly will be of interest to some of you out there. So each year, the, the Planning Students Association at UBC School of Community and Regional Planning brings together students, practitioners, and researchers to engage in discussion and debate around key challenges in planning. This year, we asked the question, how can we build resilient and inclusive cities in the face 
of deeply complex environmental, social, and economic challenges. And uh, so, so join them on Friday, Friday, February 7th for Embracing Complexity. So I'm not sure, I just met, misread February 1st, so apologies, the, the event is not February 1st, um, but it is February uh, 7th, this is Friday, February 7th, um, and the title of the symposium is Embracing Complexity, the 6th Annual SCARP Student Symposium, and it uh, happens from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Graduate Student Society Building at 6371 Crescent Road at the University of British Columbia's Vancouver campus. And you can register online, um, and the deadline for that is fe- February 1st, so I've got one date right, uh, but but not the date of the event. So again, register online by February 1st, that's the deadline, and they're partnering with the Planning Institute of BC and UConn um, to offer um, some learning credits. So if that applies to you, uh, awesome. And keynotes include speakers, uh, the keynote speakers include Dr. Andrew Weaver, um, Anne Rader and Dr. John Friedman. And actually, Dr. John Friedman, um, we, we brought you a lecture or a talk that he gave um, in 2013 um, about urbanization um, in Asia and specifically uh, China. So um, somebody that has been featured on the program. So you should check that out um, also at thecityfm.org. But also, if you're interested in the symposium, uh, check it out at scarpsymposium.ca. Um, for more information, and you can find out how to register at that website. Again, that's www.scarpsymposium.ca, and that's S-C-A-R-P symposium.ca. So I want to thank the planning students for passing that uh, my way, and and hopefully that is of interest to some of you. We're going to wrap up the show with some more tracks. Um, This is The City. I'm Andy Longhurst. We're here every Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m., live on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and uh, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast off iTunes and available at thecityfm.org. We're going to take a track now from... uh, Who are we going to hear next? We're going to hear from... Uh, from Hooded Fang, um, based out of Toronto. And uh, before that, uh, you heard from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings from their latest album, Give the People What They Want. Uh, it's a fantastic track, uh, fantastic album. Um, so check that out. But now we're going to hear Hooded Fang, and uh, we've got a little bit more time on the program. Uh, stay with us. This is The City.
Sexual Assault Support Center is happy to present its new collaboration with My Sister's Closet, a social enterprise of battered women support services. The SASC's Got Consent clothing items will be sold at My Sister's Closet, located at 1092 Seymour Street in Vancouver. The Got Consent initiative is a preventative campaign that creatively touches upon the necessity for consent to be present during all sexual encounters. The Got Consent branding is visible on a variety of clothing items, including t-shirts, underwear, and tank tops. It's also available at the SASC and the UBC Wellness Center in the sub, in addition to at My Sister's Closet. For more information on the Sexual Assault Support Center at UBC and the Got Consent campaign, go to ams.ubc.ca slash SASC. Each year, the Planning Students Association of UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning brings together students, professionals, and researchers to engage in discussion around key challenges in planning. This year, we asked the question, how can we build resilient and inclusive cities 
in the face of deeply complex environmental, social, and economic challenges. Join us on Friday, February 7th for Embracing Complex City, the sixth annual SCARP Student Symposium from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Graduate Student Society Building on the UBC campus. Register online by February 1st at www.scarpsymposium.ca. Keynote speakers include Dr. Andrew Weaver, Anne Mage Ryder, and Dr. John Friedman. And this is The City here on CATR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. I'm Andy Longhurst, and that does it for the show. On the program, we had Dr. John Molenkoff, and he is Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Sociology at the City University of New York. And we are continuing our discussion about uh, New York City and the politics of New York um, in light of the recent election of Democrat Bill de Blasio um, and reflecting back on the three terms of uh, Republican Michael Bloomberg. You can check all that out at thecityfm.org. And uh, you're, you're hearing us either live uh, Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. on CHR 101.9 FM or syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM from uh, Fridays at 10 to 11 a.m. <coughs> And sorry about that. That was uh, <laughs> uh, a, uh, our automatic track um, player coming on. So sorry about that. Um, but just to, to wrap up, um, you're either hearing us on CJSF or CITR. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, and we're going to be back next week with more critical urban discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. And uh, uh, have a wonderful week. Are you not sure where to go on campus? Traveling late at night and afraid to go alone? Call SafeWalk, a free service where a co-ed team will take you anywhere you need to go on campus. Don't walk alone. For a walk, add SafeWalk to your phone. Call 604-822-5355. That's 604-822-5355. Alternatively, use a UBC Blue phone and ask for SafeWalk. Approach any SafeWalk team or drop by our office on the main floor of the sub across from the gallery lounge. Out for the